Good evening. You are tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. If you ever miss our show live, you can check us out on cjsw.com slash writers dash block. This episode of Writer's Block features interviews with Mirna Kostash as well as Aiden Moher. If you'd like to get involved with our show, you can send us a line at cjsw.writers at gmail.com. Coming up first is our interview between Jenny Kwong and Mirna Kostash. Stay tuned! My name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. Today, I'm speaking with Myrna Kostash about her new non-fiction book, Ghosts in a Photograph. So welcome, Myrna. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. And so how does it feel to release this book at a time when there are Ukrainian stories are important with the war happening now? Well, of course, I had no idea when I was working on the book or even when it was published that it would be released in a time of war. And of course, it's been absolutely catastrophic and devastating for Ukraine. Those of us who have relations or have any kind of connection with the life in Ukraine are particularly affected. But how how it feels actually to be the writer of this particular book is that it will help provide context about Ukraine and perhaps the events leading up to independence and the wish to be independent of Russia and not to struggle against Russian uh, forces. And this is really important, Jenny, because there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation circulating around our our social media and and this book will be a kind of (laughs) reminder to people of, you know, check, check your facts, read this book. And so how was the writing process of the book, looking at your grandparents' photographs uh, as someone older uh, when compared to when you were? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting question, because when I first considered my history as a Ukrainian-Canadian, I just went back as far as my, my sort of parents' generation, and they were the ones born in Canada. But of course, their my grandparents were still very much around, and that generation was still around. Now, everybody's gone. My parents' generation is gone as well. So here I am, left on my own with my cousins and my sister to try to piece the story back together again. But the reason why I wanted to do it at all is exactly as you suggested. I'm a much more mature writer, and I'm, of course, an an older person by something like 40 years from the first book. And so now when I look at these lives of the Ukrainian Canadians, I'm doing so through the various lenses of my own life experience. And so I have a much more nuanced uh, and I would say much more sympathetic and empathetic relationship to those stories. I'm not nearly as judgmental, you know, or c- categorical as I was. And I have a new kind of voice as a result. It's, it's. Uh, I would describe my earlier voice as one that was full, full of attitude. I call it a great big fat attitude toward about the history of, of the Ukrainian Canadians. And now, I'm, I, as I say, I understand much more the complexities of, of their lives. But also because they're thinking about my grandparents, Jenny, meant I had to talk, think about where they came from. And they came to Canada as adults. So I had to go back and also research. Now, what was that country they came from? It was called Galicia. 
wasn't part of modern Ukraine at the time, right? And then I discovered that there were relatives who we never spoke of in Canada who had had extraordinary lives of their own in Ukraine. And that was sort of the second part of my book. So the process was both a kind of personal investigation and then also an investigation through documents and research and memorabilia and so on. It was, it was very many levels. And then, of course, the photographs, because I, I, I spent a lot of time looking at photographs and describing them. There are none in the book, uh, and that's quite deliberate because I wanted people to be able to imagine these, these faces and these, these scenarios from, from, from my description. Did you, miss, did you wish that there had been photographs? It could have helped to kind of get a sense of who the individuals were, but at the same time, it, it's good to immerse into a text to figure out the bits and pieces yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it works to work both ways. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what were the documents that you had on hand to work with? Yeah. Well, this is important because, you know, it's because my father himself was a very well read and man and very much immersed in the community life, the Ukrainian Canadian community life, that he had a, an awareness of what was important in terms of what of keeping. Now, of course, a lot of things got lost along the way, but what was left was really interesting. And I'll, I'll give you an example. of uh, These documents tell you so many things. So, for example, a, a baptismal certificate will have names of godparents, the names of the parents, of course. There's a priest and there's a midwife. And so, so suddenly there's a, a small population of people with a baptismal certificate. With a, my, one of my grandfather's naturalization papers, I, that's how I discovered that the name was changed from Kostashchuk to Kostash. That's when it happened. Or a school report indicated that a, another grandfather of mine who only had about six years of schooling in the village school was not illiterate. These were not illiterate people. They had village school schooling, and he had like seven or eight subjects in that school, and so on. And, and finally, a passport, one of my grandmother's passports that was issued in, in Galicia, gave a physical description of her as a young woman, right? So these are the, the, the documents that lead into other, you know, scenes, and you can start to flesh out a lot more about the character, even if they aren't alive, to tell you to tell you these things, right? In addition to that, there was a stack of letters that my father had kept that he had received from a relative in Ukraine, and that was quite informative. And his own memoir and another memoir that he translated, and so on. All right. And uh, you said uh, your father had a sense of uh, keeping some documents. So uh, did your family have a sense of keeping things so that you would have something to work with? At a future time? Sorry, did my family? Sorry, did my family what? H have a sense of keeping things so that uh, there would be materials at the future time. Well, that, I don't think it was done deliberately. It's just that my father, as I said, was a very educated and very well-read man, and he had files, and you know, he he was he was well organized. Um, I have I have no idea, of course, what he did not keep. But these were the things that I found in his papers after after I received them, right? But the the other set of, of more deliberate um, archiving was the photographs. And I have to say something here about photographs because any these are not digital, right? These are photographs that were printed out, right? And I don't know what people are going to do now if they want to trace the family stories and so on through photographs, which are sitting inside somebody's phone. 
right? This is going to be lost. Yeah. So my my sort of advice to anybody who's interested in in um, perhaps preserving yeah. an account of their family is don't first of all don't throw anything out. You have no idea what will become important and useful. And print out your damn photographs <laughs> and yeah. put cap put captions on them. It's one thing to have the photograph, but if nobody's identified, if there's no year, no place, then that becomes certainly more difficult for, for a writer like me yeah. when I've come across those photographs. Now I won't have photographs on their phones, but if you lose your phone <laughs> and you yes, forgot even. to print them out beforehand. Exactly. Absolutely. Because, yeah. no, you know, you, 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 we, we do not know for whom these documents and these, this evidence will eventually be really important. So don't assume that it's not important. Or I mean, you can you can you can exercise a certain amount of discretion about how much you will keep or not, but don't assume that nobody's interested. Okay, mm-hmm. that's my advice. All right. And so, uh, what role did official multiculturalism have on the Ukrainian? Yeah. Uh, well, multiculturalism is really important for the development of the Ukrainian Canadian community as a sense of being part of the Canadian mosaic, as we used to call it, call it right? And so the Ukrainians are very enthusiastic boosters of, of multiculturalism, and that's when the heritage festivals were, were established, you know, and there were the, the folk the folk dance groups, etc. Um, and so, but that time passed. That is no longer the time we're in. And I became very aware of the transition from multiculturalism to anti-racism. And so what became the issue for minorities in Canada was not their ethnicity, but whether they were racialized. And at that point, Ukrainian Canadians became white, period, right? We were like white Europeans, so we kind of faded into this larger category or identity of of Canadians. And that was a shock. That was a real shock for people who thought that Ukrainian Canadians were going to be, you know, poster, poster kids. For, for generations, but it's been a really important development for us. And of course, adding on to that or evolving from that has now been what I would call the settler indigenous relationship or encounter. And that's what I had to deal with in my book as well. It's not enough that we just talk about our past and who our forebears and ancestors were. We have to bring that into relationship with the indigenous people. And now there is uh, more Ukrainians arriving with the war happening. So uh, how has that impacted the long-standing community? Yeah, well, uh, it's actually called the fifth wave now because the first wave was the one that my grandparents were part of. They came before the First World War, which was 1914. The second wave came between the two world wars, between 1918 and 19, I do or, or something. Then the third wave came out after the Second World War, and these were Ukrainians who had been in deported persons camps in Germany rather than France, however, rather than going back to what was then the Soviet Union. They came they came over to Canada, United States, Australia. Like That was the third wave. Then there was a fourth wave that came from Yugoslavia, of all places. There was actually a Ukrainian minority in Yugoslavia, and then when Yugoslavia fell apart with the wars in the early 1990s, that wave came over. And now we have the fifth wave. There's always some kind of war associated with these 
these waves of settlement now that I think about it. So we'll see. It's too early to say what ultimately the impact would be, but it certainly mobilized the Ukrainian-Canadian community, among other communities, to provide humanitarian aid and, and try to find jobs and et cetera, for, because they're coming over, some, some of them as, as quite young people, and, and an amazing number of them are very, very comfortable speaking English, which was, wasn't true of, of earlier migration. So we'll see. I think there'll be a different kind of assimilation into Canadian society, or there will be a mass movement back to Ukraine mm. after the war is finished, right? Because these people are coming for three uh, visas of three years I mean, and may decide to go back or not. If they're raising children already in Canada, you know, it's, it's very difficult to go back if you've got kids who are totally Canadian, right? I guess that's uh, about the end of the interview. Anything else you'd like to say before uh, we wrap up? Uh, I'm just looking at my, my little notes here. There was one thing I wanted to, to say about what it feels like to have this book come out now. Another aspect of having this book published now, besides giving context, and, and, and I thank you for this interview, is to keep Ukraine in mind. You know, that it's, it could fade back into the background if we're not careful. I'm saying this as a Ukrainian-Canadian. It, the war goes on, and I want us to keep thinking in, about Ukrainians, what's going on there. And I hope my book is part of that conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Myrna, for your time today. And I'll, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you again sometime again. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Okay, thanks again. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Writer's Block. That was my interview with Myrna Kostash, author of Ghosts in the Photograph, a new non-fiction title looking at the lives of her grandparents as early settlers from Ukraine in Alberta in the early 20th century. Myrna Kostash is a non-fiction author of classics such as All of Baba's Children, and no kidding, inside the world of teenage girls. She is the winner of the Alberta Culture and Writers Guild of Alberta Prize for Best Nonfiction. Is a recipient of the City of Edmonton Book Prize, as well as the Writers Guild of Alberta Wilfred Eagleton Award for Best Nonfiction. She also serves as the chair of the Writers Union of Canada. For those who just tuned in, you are listening to Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. That was our interview between Jenny Kwong and Mirna Kostash. Coming up next, we have my interview with Aiden Mower. Stay tuned. Awesome. So good evening, everyone. This is Maddie Robinson interviewing Aiden Mower about his new work, Fight Magic items. How's it going, Aiden? It's going really good. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Well, we're happy to have you. I was super excited to interview you because as a kid, I was obsessed with like old RPG video games. So I thought this would be a perfect match. Um, So to get this interview rolling for CGSW, let's start with the basics. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work? Yeah. So Fight Magic Items, it's a history of Final Fantasy Dragon Quest and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. So it's specifically about like these kind of weird, quirky Japanese games designed by Japanese creators uh, for Japanese players and their journey to the West and how they ended up becoming such a like a popular and beloved uh, video game genre here in North America. And uh, a few years ago, I made the leap into games journalism, writing for places like Wired and Kotaku. Uh, but I'd always kind of come back to this idea of like, you know, how do games tell stories? Like, how do people 
you know, I, you know, I saw among my friends growing up, we all loved epic fantasy books, but we also loved video games. And it's like, you know, if, if we loved these things, I bet other people did too. And so I've looked a lot at like the crossover between like, you know, readers and, and book fandom and, and video game fandom. Well, that, that's a great answer. And it actually kind of leads into my next question. I wanted to chat a little bit more broadly. So something I noticed, I studied English literature as well as creative writing. And I noticed that video games don't seem to have the same cultural oomph as other forms of art, like, for example, you know, uh, political movements, television series, uh, radio hits, Oscar winning movies. But what's interesting to me is that if you ask someone to define their childhood or their adolescence or their teenage years or their early 20s, they'll actually think often about the video games they play just as much as the songs they listen to or the movies they watch. Like in some ways, video games have the same cultural oomph, but you don't you don't have, you know, video game studies. You only have like film studies and English studies. And so do you think in the next few years, we're going to see almost kind of a reckoning for media where they have to also reckon with the fact that video games have their own kind of they kind of have their own like really do you think we'll be seeing like video game professors in the next 50 years or is that too far out there i don't know <laughs> i was just wondering yeah no i don't think it's too far out there and i think it's happening already you know video games compared to stuff like film or, or music or books video games are very new right They're, it's a young medium and so there's been a lot of exploration a lot of um you know experimentation as video games and their creators have, have figured out like everything that video games can do and they started off by like you know looking at, at at other forms of entertainment or media and trying to replicate some of what they saw there but now we're seeing that they can do so many of their own things that aren't uh, available to other forms of media they can tell stories so they tell stories that you know allow the player to become an active participant in the narrative in a way that books and film don't right books and film are, are linear they you know they tell a story and you experience that uh, as a Spectator. Video games allow you to become part of that. And I think that that's something that, uh, you know, to, to some people, you know, anyone sort of younger than 40 at this point, like we've grown up only knowing a world of video games. And so I think that the fact that for a long time, video games were marketed towards children, um, they're looked at as like a toy, not like a legitimate form of, of expression or art or entertainment. They were a toy to like distract me as a kid, right? Uh, when my mom needed to cook dinner. Sorry, I could yep. play video games. <laughs> Uh, so like they weren't taken seriously necessarily by the, the older generations when they were first emerging. But now we are in a place where the people who grew up with video games, uh, you know, bought the the NES uh, and the Game Boy and the Super NES and Genesis. We're now, you know, in our 20s and 30s or 40s. And we have, a, you know, our own uh, impact on culture in a way that, you know, we didn't necessarily 20 years ago. Now you have stuff like, you know, The Last of Us premiering on HBO. Yes, we're that watching like that tonight. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's going to be the next big prestige show right it's going to reach audiences outside of typical gamer audiences in the same way that game yes. of thrones did a decade ago right it reached people who would never touch a fantasy novel um or be yeah. seen in public with a fantasy novel you know yeah everybody goes back to roger ebert saying video games can't be art i don't know if he meant that i think he meant it as a challenge i think he mm -hmm. saw the opportunity uh the potential for video games to be so much more uh, than what he was seeing in the mainstream right it's funny you mentioned that i guess we're on the same wavelength because i was thinking of roger ebert because something that he said about film because he kind of he made the argument that film was the highest art form because it included writing and it included photography skills it included dance it included visual art film could include everything but like the counter argument is that a video game actually includes video a video game includes all of those elements elements including film so in some ways it's actually like it could be the higher art form because it's interactive right so yeah that is interesting that you brought that up because i was actually going to br bring that up anyway because i think you, you do mention that video games provide a unique experience because they are interactive which kind of leads me into my my next point so 
Minecraft, for those who don't know, is like one of the highest selling video games of all time. And recently there's been a bit of a scandal because the person who wrote the final poem at the end of Minecraft came out and talked about how he kind of got scammed because everyone else involved in Minecraft made billions of dollars, but he didn't. You know, Minecraft is played by basically every North American kid. Like everyone knows this, there's toys everywhere. And this man wrote this poem at the end of Minecraft, which is now famous. And I'm willing to bet that most kids, there are more children that have probably read this poem or this form of literature or this kind of weird, unique story than there are kids that know about Shakespeare or kids that know about even say something like Star Wars even. I'd be willing to bet more kids know about Minecraft. So, you know, with the interactive form as well, like, what do you think about creative writers? Do you think more of them are going to move into storytelling via video game? What are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah. So like my background is in, like, I was a book blogger for a long time. Um, and that's my background sort of as a journalist was in covering uh, science fiction and fantasy books through a blog that I ran for a number of years. And my very first piece of games journalism was for Kotaku. It looked at the connection between sci- this new generation of science fiction and fantasy authors. So I was looking at uh, authors like uh, Tamsin Muir and uh, Max Gladstone and talking to them about how, you know, they're well-known award-winning science fiction fantasy authors who have been as inspired by the works of like Hironobu Sakaguchi, who created Final Fantasy, Yuji Horii, who created Dragon Quest, as they are by Ursula Le Guin or J.R.R. Tolkien. And so I reached out and I wrote this piece for Kotaku about the impact of of these Japanese RPGs on a whole generation of well-known and well-read and and, uh, well-respected science fiction and fantasy authors. And I think it extends out beyond there because we're reaching a place where, you know, the the most influential people as millennials and, and Gen Z as we get older, you know, we're the ones that are writing the books and we're the ones that are kind of reaching the prime of when we're starting to create like culture in the West and we can't untie the things that we loved as kids. Okay. I did want to mention, you know, it's interesting you bring this up because I was studying English literature and one of the books we studied was Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. And there was actually a piece of interactive fiction called 80 Days where you got to choose how you went around the world in like the steampunk world. So it's very interesting because I feel like there's so much crossover there between writing. And I I think that game actually won an award for the writing because it was, it was quite good. In one of the little blurbs in your book, you mentioned a game called Cosmic Star Heroine. And it it mentions that this project was actually a kickstarted project. And I know there's been a lot of news about fantasy and kickstarter because Brandon Sanderson recently launched his kickstarted books and it broke records and things like this. And Undertale, I think, was also a kickstarted project, which is really interesting. But I wanted to ask about kind of the industry in general. There seems to be a lot of complaints at like E3 and like at Nintendo and with the bigger companies. Do you think that all these like successful indie games is going to spark like an indie game revolution? Do you think we're already in that? Like, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think we're absolutely already in that. And that's something that like if you, you've picked up on that in the book and I spent a lot of time at the end of the book writing about that because I think the indie space, especially for uh, Japanese RPGs, but for games period, has revitalized interest in smaller scale games that just could never be justified by the big AAA studios. So you look at where like Final Fantasy has gone over the years and Final Fantasy 16 looks like the graphics are crazy. It looks like, you know, it's so highly polished. The production values are incredible. costs a fortune, right? And so they're looking at this. They've put so much money into this. Uh, And then you have the, you know, the creator, Yoshi P, and he is going in interviews saying like, oh, you know, like younger kids these days, they don't like menu driven combat. So, you know, we're focusing, we're shifting the focus of this Final Fantasy game to be more of an action driven, uh, you know, RPG uh, with like one on one combat to appeal to younger players. And so like, they put so much money into this that it can't really represent some of the like, you know, the, the structures and the ideas that have defined the Japanese RPG genre for so long. But where I think things are really interesting with the indie space specifically, you bring up Kickstarter as an example, is it's creating this 
space for experimentation and risk-taking that just can't exist in the AAA space, right? So you have smaller teams. Uh, they go straight to fans because there's still so many fans of these games, right? Like people like me, I'm in my late 30s and like I want to I experience games that remind me of the games I loved when I was 16, right? Like, you know, the AAA space became so obsessed with pushing technological boundaries and, and getting an audience as, it's, as big as possible. The indie space and the crowdfunding space doesn't need to do that. They could sell 100,000 copies of their game. With those smaller stakes comes, you know, more room for risk and experimentation and more room as well for smaller teams to have really sharp ideas of what they want their game to be, right? And so Cosmic Star Heroine, which you bring up, that, like there's two people. It's made by two people. Um, and I know, I know with a lot of these, like, yeah, these big game companies, I've heard that the work-life balance is just off the charts. Like people are working 12-hour days every single day and that's kind of a minimum. Um, I think too, though, it's interesting because with film... I think it's easier to get an indie game out than an indie film out to a wide audience because Steam is such a good resource for that. And I feel like actually the the community I've seen with people that really like kind of weird niche video games, they almost seem friendlier in some regards than other. <laughs> like with a lot of other art forms like literature, I think there's a little bit of cattiness and a little bit of competition and stuff. Whereas with, with video games, because it's such a playful community as it is, it seems more collaborative. I did want to mention too, I read a book last year. And it was part of the uh, 33 and a third series, which is a series about different records that are famous. And um, it was written by a guy or a girl, I forget who, um, but they talked about how the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack, the original one actually counts in their eyes as a record and a famous record that has, you know, been historical because everyone recognizes the theme song. But it's really interesting because the music wasn't just produced by an idea. It was also produced by the, um, like the limitations of the system itself, because there's only so many notes they could play at, at, at one time. I mean, I think it's interesting too, because I've been thinking about music as well, especially with Final Fantasy. Like I admit, I haven't played all the Final Fantasies or anything like this, but I, I used to always like find the the sheet music and try to play the songs on piano because they have such recognizable soundtracks. And especially with um like something like Super Mario 64, I don't think I'm the only person that ever just like left the screen on Dire Dire Dock so they could like listen to that that soundtrack, right? Like it's all very familiar to people. So I wanted to ask, just in case listeners are interested in other reads, do you have any um, other video game books that you'd recommend or video game literature for anyone that's interested in this world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always have to shout out my friend Daniel Dockery's Monster Kids. Uh, it came out the same day as uh, as Fight Magic Items. Same editor, same publisher. Uh, Daniel's amazing. Uh, what Fight Magic Items does for the history of Japanese RPGs, Monster Kids does for the history of Pokemon. So it's a little more focused on Pokemon. Uh, but it's fabulous. It's a, it's an incredible book. But what I also wanted to do is, is roll back a little bit because you mentioned 33 and a third, which is the book series about like records. And each um, each book focuses on a, a famous record and the history of that and the impact. But there's actually a um, book imprint called Boss Fight Books or a boutique publisher called Boss Fight Books uh, that does the exact same thing and was like directly inspired by 33 and a third for video games. And so they're these, uh, they're these really comprehensive deep dives into single video game titles. So they've done like Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. They've done uh, Chrono Trigger. They've done Final Fantasy VI. Um, and they 
allow the writers to like take these games really seriously and examine their history, examine why they're so important to people. And not, not all of them are good games. Sometimes they cover bad games, but also looking at why these bad games are, are interesting or notable in a way that just takes video games very seriously in a way that I think that they deserve to be taken seriously and like recording the, the history that we have here. Um, and so I've read a, a bunch of them and they're, uh, they're fabulous. It's uh, boss fight books. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. I actually really like boss fight soundtracks. I find them very fascinating because they also you also have to remember that they have to also loop the soundtrack. So there's an extra technical element that's really curious. Um, I will say that we are out of time for this interview, unfortunately, but thank you for so much for coming on for our show. Um, were there any last words you had for the listeners about your uh, your work, anything else like that? I just appreciate you having me on. Let me talk about this. This is, is like such a personal book for me. And I, I hope that even if you're not like a huge Japanese RPG fan, if you love video games, if you love creative histories, I think that this is a book that will appeal to a lot of people. It's very personal. It's, it's a story. It's about video games, but it's about people. It's about what drives us. And I think that those are really kind of human stories that uh, connect across readers of all types um i hope some of you could pick it up and, and read it and share it with friends uh it, it's uh it's been a big passion project for me i'm just really proud it's out uh, in the world for people me as well well thank you so much for coming on the show For those who just tuned in, you have been listening to an episode of Writer's Block on CGSW 90.9 FM. Writer's Block airs on the third Wednesday of every month from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And if you miss this show live, you can always check us out on CJSW.com. This episode of Writer's Block featured interviews with Myrna Kostash as well as an interview with Aiden Lower. If you'd like to get involved with our show, you can send us a line at CJSW writers at gmail.com that will conclude this evening's episode of writer's block thanks for listening